Hello and welcome to Reading People. I'm Megan Lane and today I'm joined by Sam and Meg to talk to Sir Robert Malpass. Sir Robert has had a long and varied engineering career. He worked with Imperial Chemical Industries, was a managing director of oil and gas super major BP, has been chairman of PowerGen and the Cookson Group and co-chairman of Eurotunnel. Sir Robert heard about Enmite through our co-founder Karen Usher and we're really pleased that he's here today to speak to us. Thank you for joining us. I'm very honoured to be here. We've asked you to choose some books, some pieces of literature, and the first one I'd like to talk about is Sapiens by Yuval Harari. Harari, yes. Why did you choose that book? Well, because it had very good reviews, and then I picked it up, and I was immediately gripped by the first page. It's a, a very, I found it a very compelling book, and actually a page turner, and it sort of filled in a lot of why did we as a chimpanzee become what we are today? And I found it absolutely fascinating. The one, one of the bits I can remember very well, it's a long time since I read it, was that the tribe of chimpanzees discovered fire. Now, what did fire do for them? Well, fire allowed them to see at night, which other animals couldn't. Fire allowed them to cook things. And fire also did something very important. About half the energy that you gain from food, half goes to your stomach and half goes to your brain. But if you eat cooked food, you need less energy to go to your stomach. So more energy came to that particular tribe of chimpanzees' brain than went to their stomach, which was different to all animals, which is why they grew very large brains and as a consequence began to do all sorts of things that other animals didn't do. So they are. So that sort of fact I found absolutely compelling. And the book is, is just full of them all the way through. So I read it from cover to cover in a very short time. I'm actually just reading a sequel of his, which so far is not quite as good. 24 Answers for the 21st Century, I think it's called. So we'll see. Obviously, a theme is cognitive agriculture and scientific revolution. What to you in your lifetime has been the most exciting part of the tech revolution? Oh, I, I unquestionably the digital age. I started my career in the plastics age, at the time when plastics would have been discovered every month, new processes were just being discovered every month. I was part of an organization that was making plastics, and so I was very excited by the newness of that new technology. And so I, I liken the digital age, in, it, it's in a very much greater scale than the plastics age, but in the age that I was part of 50 or 60 years ago. You were born in 1927. Obviously, that was quite a different time, I imagine, to where we are now. What do you think the greatest change humankind faced in that time? Mm, well, I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is the internationalization of everything. The group of people you have around you come from all sorts of parts of the world. So being able to travel and go all over the world is quite normal. In my youth, traveling around the world was a big event. And also digitalization, as I said earlier, allows you to do all sorts of things. I'm sure you use your computers all the time, every day. You have at your fingertips, for example, the best lecturers in the world. The ability of learning has increased enormously since my day. Remember that I come from the age of the most advanced piece of technology we had was a slide rule. That's what we did all our work on. And calculators were only just beginning to come in. Now, I believe, I believe you're allowed calculators in your exams, are you not? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we talked a bit about this earlier. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. And you've said you've seen the show three times. I'm yes. very jealous of that. Yes. <laughs> um, Alexander Hamilton is described as the founding father of America. Why have you chosen that book? Well, his story is 
very, very interesting that he was one of the seven founding fathers of the USA, and he is the only non-American amongst the seven. And at the age of 25 or something, he gained a tremendous reputation in the States for his thinking. He wrote Federalist papers advocating federalism for the 13 states, as then was the USA. And there was a group of them who thought that they had better become a federation rather than remain 13 states. And so he and Madison wrote 80 papers called the Federalist Papers. He wrote 50 of them. He was illegitimate. He was born outside the States in Nevis, one of the Caribbean islands. And yet he became, as a non-American, one of the seven founding fathers of what today is America. I, f I found that a remarkable story. The play actually begins when he's already established as a very well-known uh, lawyer in the States. He became an aide to General Washington. He was his chief aide de car. He wrote all his letters. He wrote all his speeches. Later, the first minister that Washington created was Alexander Hamilton, the Minister of Treasury. Today, Wall Street is Hamilton's creation. The Bank of New York is Hamilton's creation. The customs in the States are Hamilton's creation. A whole lot of things which are now taken for granted were created by Hamilton's thinking. The American population as a whole for about 200 years just forgot about him. So I find that a remarkable story and it makes a wonderful play. Yeah, it's part of the reason, isn't it, why Lin-Manuel Miranda and the co-writers brought the play back to remind people, actually, of yes, his legacy. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Uh, so in that story, he does make sacrifices to champion ideas that were radical, disruptive at the yeah. time. Have you had that kind of experience of going against public opinion or what the current norm is, and how have you dealt with that? Yes. I suppose the, uh, the most fundamental impact I had on that sort of thinking was that I spent 30 years working for a company called ICI. It was the largest chemical company in Europe, Imperial Chemical Industries. I became dissatisfied with the new chemical plants that were being built when I got into a high position. And it was my job to oversee the technical quality of what we were doing. And I'd spent my early years as an engineer very much helping to design, helping to maintain and build these chemical plants. In my opinion, they just didn't look right. They only got down to designing the plant when the main board of the company gave the particular part of ICI the money. Then it's too late. The minute you get the money, you're then intent on producing what it is you ask the money for. And so there's very little time for radical ideas. Now, radical ideas going right back to the chemical equations, for example. Surely somebody should be working on those now, never mind just when you get the money, yeah. about five years beforehand. Somebody should be thinking about how you're going to package whatever it is you make. How are you going to design it? What's the layout? What does it all look like? So I invented a concept called the plant after next. You can apply it to any design of any to a computer, to all the rest of it. You start that design long before you've got the money to, to do it, to do the work. So that caught on in a big way. That was very much against current thinking at the time. You mentioned to us that you're not a massive fan of fiction books, and in fact, you prefer biographies. Why is that? The simple answer is I find them more real. An awful lot of, uh, for example, uh, um, science fiction, I just find I can't read it because it's, it's fictional science. I know it's somebody projecting what might happen. I find it just not tangible. I, and I enjoy reading real stories. And I think biographies have got enough of drama in them and enough of interest and enough of general interest that uh, 
that are far more real to me. You mentioned Brunel. My wife just took a photograph of me standing next to Brunel's statue in Paddington Station. Uh Well, Brunel, um, I read his biography, and at the end of his biography, there is actually a very, very telling epilogue, which is worth reading if you don't read the book. And in it, he says something which I believe, which was Brunel was among the last complete engineers that Britain produced. And the teaching of engineering, then the engineering practice became so subdivided into, first of all, electrical, mechanical, instruments, civil, that people become very specialized. Brunel, in doing what he did, brought the whole lot together. And what fascinated me about this place, and might, is that that's exactly what you're being taught. Just bring together all the disciplines, right? I was asked some time ago to produce a report. In that report, one of the first things we did was to define engineering, technology, and science in very short terms and in very discrete terms. Because up to then, the definition of these words overlapped. If you looked at them in the dictionary, they were very overlapping. So I wanted definitions which didn't exist until we wrote them, which were very, very clearly defined. And engineering I defined as it's both the knowledge required and the practice of bringing all knowledge, not only applied science. Applied science is the main ingredient, which you bring all knowledge. You bring um, demographic knowledge, you bring environmental knowledge, you bring legal knowledge, you bring all sorts of knowledge together to build what it is or to make what it is that is required. It's a holistic mm-hmm. approach. And engineering has become, and I think it is now, are taking much more of a holistic approach. And people like Brunel practice the whole lot. Do you think there's a point to be made that as time's gone on and technology's gone so advanced that it's almost difficult to get such a wide range of knowledge? Or yes, do I do. Yeah. I do. Unless it's not all much. Well, the current exponent of this business of bringing it all together is Thomas Heatherwick. He designed the cauldron, the um, cauldron at the 2012 Olympics. Oh, wow. It's magnificent, if you remember it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're a bit younger then, all right. Uh, the, there were 204, the number of nations, yes. arms. Mm-hmm. And at the end of each of those arms, there was a flame the petals of that flame carried in by each nation. When they carried in, they deposited the petals at the end of those arms, and then those arms were all lit. And so there were 204 fires all the way around, and then it all all came up together into one torch. Now, the symbolism of that was 204 cultures, 204 approaches to life suddenly come together for a fortnight and then there is one ethic and that is the olympic ethic and i thought that was magnificent yeah and he's done many other things the the new buses in london i don't know if you've noticed oh, them yeah. they were all designed by heatherwick he doesn't describe himself as an engineer they tried to persuade him to become an engineer as a young man and he said no i will employ engineers but what i am is a 3d designer which was a, an excellent description and if i'm do engineering it's to isolate. It's only a bit of it. So I believe what you're being taught is just how to do all of that. You have to solve a problem. Engineering is solving a problem or a need or improving something that already exists. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, the concept of project engineering became the starting, really. Before that, in the company I work for, we weren't called project engineers. We were called mechanical engineers. Mechanical engineers were responsible for the whole design of this chemical plant, right? There. I realized then that it could have been anybody. It could have been an electrical engineer did it. It could have been an instrument engineer. Anybody actually doesn't even have to be an engineer, as you're finding out. 
So in my view, becoming a project engineer requires a huge skill set. And that is why I'm so keen that this place exists. And if you don't have that skill set, you'll be taught how to find it. I've defined engineering as both the knowledge and the skill required. And you've learned how to find the knowledge. You're being taught about the skill required. How do you do this? Even if you've got the knowledge and the skill, how do you bring it all together? And I find that extremely important. You were growing up in Brazil, in mm. Buenos Aires, and then you came to England to study at Durham University Mechanical Engineering. Mm. What are your memories of those two different systems? Do you remember how they differed? Well, I, I only did primary education in Brazil, mm. then I came to England and then to Argentina. I think they, they conformed. Um, up to the age of 13, I worked with a Meccano set. I used to build things. I loved it. I had a lovely Meccano set, and we used to add to it every year. At the age of 13, I got onto what is called the exam treadmill. And all of a sudden, creativity was not part of my thinking. My thinking was absolutely entirely linked to passing exams. Yeah. But I wanted to go back to engineering. Why? Well, because um, living in Brazil, my parents used to come to England every four years on leave. uh, And we used to come by ship. And I used to spend most of my time in the engine room. I was absolutely fascinated by motive power. What made things move? How did they move? Why did they choose this particular way of making things move? So I can encapsulate it in two words. I was curious and I wanted to be creative. And engineering seemed to be the thing that I wanted to do to do just that. Now, if you think, there are lots of side stories. If you think of civilization, all civilization is the result of human creativity, everything. The greatest contributor to human creativity over the last 500 years has been engineering. And I've devoted a lot of my time in the last 50 years or so improving that image of engineering. It's beginning to turn now by the things like Heatherwick, what he has done, the things that our architects are doing, the things that the digital world is doing. All the people working in Silicon Valley in the States, most of the people are called engineers. They're not called engineers in the UK. They're called computer scientists, all sorts of other things, but not the word engineers. Engineers has been limited to entirely operation. The chap who mends your boiler, the person who designs the air conditioning and things like this. Engineering at the one end of the spectrum is hugely, hugely creative. And I think that's tremendous. Building on that, the report back in 2000 on engineering, a part of that was that misunderstanding of the British public of what yeah. engineering is. You think even in the time you wrote that and where we are now that there has been a change in kind of thinking and how could we even as an institution push that even further to try and get a greater understanding yes there has been a change i think it really only started about four or five years ago the royal academy of engineering of which i'm I'm a fellow is doing an awful lot to make that happen um what can you do when it succeeds and industry and all sorts of other activities receive the product of this place people will begin to realize that engineering is really a very very broad subject and it is hugely creative one thing we're quite interested in is your father's background so we just want to know what he got up to my father was an accountant he was a lancashire man and in 1919 he sought a better quality of life than he would have as being a, what I could call a journeyman accountant in some company or other. And in those days, there was an image that if you went abroad, you had a better lifestyle. For example, you had servants in your house. So he went to Brazil. There he met my mother, 
My mother was the daughter of a French opera orchestra conductor who were doing a six-month tour in Brazil. And that's another story. That's a long story, which I shall tell you about. But there's time. Um, so he was an accountant. Because of that, he could afford to send me to school in England and my brother. And then the war came. And because the bombing of London was about to start 1940, we were both evacuated back to Brazil joined my father and mother, France had fallen, so so my mother, who was French-Italian, was scared that England would be next. So when we got to Brazil, my brother started work immediately, actually worked for Price Waterhouse, and he worked for the rest of his life for Price Waterhouse and did very well. I still had more schooling to do, so my father looked around for a school in South America, and he found this boarding school which was teaching the English curriculum, so I was sent to Argentina. I mean, that's the story of my father going to Brazil. Oh, there's one more bit to add, I suppose. After he got married, he caught a, a glandular fever, but it was identified as a tropical disease. In those days, if you were sent abroad and you got a tropical disease, you were shipped back home immediately, and you were sent to the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. They found that you didn't have a tropical disease, you had glandular fever, but they also sacked you. So, during the time that he was sacked, he lived in England for two years and tried to find various jobs and various activities. I was born, which is why I was... Born in England, and when I was two years old, I was sent to South America. Being an engineer, mm-hmm. obviously you pick up uh, a lot of skills, mm-hmm. but we were wondering what skills specifically have you picked up, and is there anything in your skill set that you feel like you're still missing? Well, I felt that very much um, when I was a young engineer. I felt very much that um, my engineering teaching had been very, very limited to mechanical engineering. So I didn't pay enough attention to electrical engineering. I didn't pay enough attention to civil engineering. And I regretted those even through my career whilst I was still being an engineer before I rose to higher levels of management where uh, those lack of skills didn't worry me so much. It was too narrow. My teaching was too narrow. As for the other, other skills, the sort of presentational skills and things like that, I learned that as I went along. I learned by experience, I learned by listening to other people, so it was very, very helpful. We talked a bit about redefining engineering in your report, and one of the other book titles is The Making of the Oxford English Dictionary by Simon Winchester. That's got quite a fascinating backstory to it. It's a huge project. It ran into financial trouble. It was saved from financial trouble by a family called Gibbs. Gibbs made his fortune by selling guano. Guano are the bird droppings. And the place, the maximum bird droppings are in the Galapagos. There are huge piles of huge beaches which are just bird droppings. And these contained a lot of nitrogen. And so nitrogen was short. And before the harbour wash process was invented, you had to find natural sources of nitrogen. And guano was one of the major ones. So he imported guano. So if you ever meet a Gibbs, ask them if they're, if they're related to a guano Gibbs. And you'll soon find out. An awful lot of them will because Gibbs was a very famous name at the time that the English, English dictionary was being thought about in, in 1940. And they built churches, they built halls, they built all sorts of things. The second story is that there is another book written by Simon Winchester called The Surgeon of Crowthorn. This is a story about an American who came to England. He befriended a man and they traveled around the world and he had some fixations in his mind. One of his fixations he's had was women 
and he sought digs in Lambeth. Why did he choose Lambeth? Because it was cheaper than anywhere else in London in those days, and because there were a lot of prostitutes there. And one night he got up, and he always kept a revolver by his bedside, and he thought there was somebody in his room. So he got up, and he chased him down the street. He saw somebody in a Mac, and he shot him. He was found guilty, but insane. Because he was found insane, he went to Broadmoor. People who ran Broadmoor realized that this was a very educated man who read a lot. And his mother, who lived in Connecticut, the States, sent him over books after book. And he read them all, and he finished reading them. So he went and he bought a book at a local library. And inside books at that time, there was a little leaflet. If you want to contribute to making a new dictionary of the Oxford English language, please send us your name, and we will ask you to join in the definition. So he wrote to them. So he became one of the greatest contributors to the Oxford English Dictionary. And this book just describes all of that. And it, but it was a bit, and anyway, that's what he did. So I was fascinated by mm. that story. It's an unlikely pairing, isn't it? Most, most unlikely, yeah. That, a, that a, a mad American who just shot somebody becomes the greatest contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary. I find that fascinating. You've lived and worked in different countries. Spain uh, included Brussels. Um, has the multicultural exposure affected your approach to engineering? I don't care where people come from. Mm -hmm. I care an awful lot about what they can do. Yeah. Right. So in that respect, I was far more open to anybody applying for a job, anybody doing what it is that I needed doing. I didn't care what his race was, what his religion was, what any of that. And perhaps I had more of a, an international approach to that sort of thing than my colleagues at the time. Well, I... Even to this day, I believe that. Was there a particular place, country that you preferred working in? Oh, I think the answer to that is yes, Spain. Really? Well, yeah. Why is that? Well, not just because of the attractions of Spain, <laughs> <laughs> but um, because I went to Spain as the head of a joint venture between ourselves and the national company, of chemical company, to set up the po first polyethylene plant in Spain. And that we built halfway between Madrid and Seville with a design from the UK, which we had to implement in Spain. I remember talking to the engineer that was allocated to me, a project engineer, and talking about accommodation for the people arriving at work. And I said, well, have you, have you, he said, bicycles and motor cars. I said, yeah, include donkeys as well. I said, oh, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that sort of thing. And that was just a novel, novel idea to him. And, and there were many other, many other instances. Anyway, we built this plant and, uh, it was a success, and we, but we also built all the marketing structure, all the technical service for which you then had to give to people who bought your plastics, how to use your plastics and so on. So we built that from scratch. I enjoyed that very much. Indeed. That was hugely creative. Have you picked up another language? Spanish, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I picked up Spanish. Portuguese? Yeah. I spoke Portuguese because I spoke it in Brazil. Yeah. So I speak Spanish and Portuguese and not bad at French. But I, I find the other languages very, very important. Um, I'll illustrate this by a story. When we were seeking staff to run this company, we were looking for a sales director. And I remember the sales director coming into my office and I was reading his CV. So he'd written French and English. And I said, oh, yes, very interesting. Do you speak French? Do you speak French? Oh, he said, yes. He said, and then he used a Spanish word for it, domino el francés. I dominate French. So I said, oh, yeah, Really? So I asked him one or two things in French, and he answered. And then he said, well, how about your English? Oh, he said, I defend myself in English. <laughs> so I laughed. Me defiendo in English. So I laughed. And he said, what are you laughing at? I said, that's very Spanish. I mean, you either kill the bull or the bull kills you. There's nothing in between. <laughs> 
I love words as well. I love play on words. And that was a wonderful, wonderful play on words for me. Did they get the job? No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, no, for other reasons. Not, not because... Anyway... <laughs> Now I'll give you I'll give you I'll, I'll give you a question for which an engineer should answer, which I tried in languages as well. How do you describe to your grandmother that a sailing boat sails forward against an oncoming wind? The first answer I always get is, "Oh, well, it's not oncoming; it's coming at forty-five degrees." I say, "Yeah, but that's oncoming. I mean, if you blow, it just moves. Why is that? Why does it happen?" So think about that and try and find out the answer. It's it's a very interesting question. Engineering challenge set. Yeah. <laughs> right, make- Telling it simplistic there, isn't it? Instead of going into the science of it, I assume you mean to to, to explain it as simply as possible. Uh, simply, I'm mean, your grandmother. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Very simple. All pressure acts at right angles to the surface that it's hitting. Okay. Remember that question next time you interview an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Chairman of PowerGen, formerly Eon, uh, you wrote the report on the energy for planet Earth in 1991 and you said, our planet is now facing a crisis and only proportion sitting on the sidelines is no longer acceptable. I mean, you spoke out about this decades ago. So what is your view on the kind of current environmental crisis um, and how do you think we will live with this in the future? Well, I actually started off by saying that only six, then, only 6% of the energy that actually hits the Earth from the sun is turned into use. That's a very, very low percentage. Even if you raise that to 10%, it's probably 8% now. So there's still 92% of the energy from the sun that we don't turn into energy. So we should do something about that. And we should do it pretty fast. And you see this great big drive right now, including this Swedish girl who's pointing a finger at all politicians and making a great success of it. Having said that, I don't think it's the end of oil and gas. Or I'm sure it's not the end of oil and gas. Oil and gas will be with us for a long time. We won't solve the problem, in my opinion, by only capturing the solar energy on solar panels, increasing the efficiency of that. It was, well, years ago when I was involved in some of it, it was about 30%, not raising it to 50% and doing something, these great big arrays of solar panels all over the place. Why is nuclear disregarded? Nuclear is actually the best way of utilizing the world's resources. It is no longer dangerous. Now, one of the reasons is you build a 2,000 megawatt unit. It costs you an awful lot of money to do it. It takes a long time to do it. Uh, people are frightened of it. So because they're frightened of it, all sorts of ridiculous, well, some of the safety regulations are actually quite sensible, but there's an awful lot of ridiculous. So, mm-hmm. The answer to nuclear is what they call um, small modular reactors, SMRs. Mm. Right? And if you read the press, you just read anything that you can on SMRs. SMRs means that rather than have a reactor which produces 1,000 megawatts or 2,000 megawatts or 1,000 megawatts, you have one which produces 50 megawatts. And those can be prefabricated off-site. It does not require anywhere near as much money. It's extremely valuable for remote places until people build these modular reactors and are happy to build their houses around them, nuclear will stagnate. But it's beginning to happen. Rolls-Royce is working on SMRs and so on. Mm -hmm. So all of that's been happening for the last eight years or so. And the USA are planning four or five installations. If you want 2,000 megawatts, well, fine, you put 40 of them together. Uh, I went to a lecture by a man who was chief executive of a uranium mining company. And he made a very interesting analogy. The motor car started off as being a a very big luxury item. They were very expensive, 
all over the place. And it took Henry Ford to make them so that they were within the means of certainly middle class, if not lower middle class people, before motor car production really took off. If he had not done what he had done, motor cars would be entirely a luxury item. So he was really comparing these very large nuclear reactors are a luxury item. It needs to be made in smaller units, popularize it, and, and, then, and then it'll take off. Of course, there will be more solar. There'll be all sorts of ways of capturing the tide. The wind farms will be more popular, so, but don't rely on them to pr- produce a computer. So a portfolio of different It has to be a portfolio. But you very rarely hear nuclear talked about in the popular press at all. It's quite nonsense. Speaking of cars, I want to know, what was your first car? My first car, it was called a Singer Le Mans, uh, something or other. Singer Le Mans? Singer Le Mans, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a sporty sort of car. Yeah. Could do a, nice. Top speed was 50 miles an hour. Oof. Pushing it. Quite something. 0 <laughs> <laughs> to 60. Yeah, right. Oh, you really didn't do that. You? <laughs> as, as, as you're near Wales, I'll tell you a story of the of, concerns my love of words. Uh, we were starting up one of these chemical plants that we designed and it had built, and I had a an engineer, two or three engineers responsible to me. One of them was Welsh, John Hopkins, and he had a lovely, lovely turn of phrase. He was... He was uh, a beautiful turn of phrase and he lived in Hartlepool which is a fair way from Wilton and so about four o'clock in the morning I said look I'll drive you home so I drove him over the Tees and then we went on what then was the first um, dual carriageway in Britain and it was made of concrete but it had great big holes in it all over the place and my car virtually <laughs> my car virtually had no springs <laughs> And so we were bumping over these roads, and I said something, which in, in my words were a bloody awful road, this is, sorry about that. And he said, it's, it's ample in conception, but parsimonious in detail. That's <laughs> uh, the phrase I've never forgotten. <laughs> so it's very Welsh. Anyway, there we are. With um, ICI, you said that a highlight of your professional career was leading 200 people at yes. the age of 34 yes. in a design department. Yes. How have you developed your leadership skills? Have they come naturally to you or have you had to really work at that side of things? I was very much aware at an early age that you have to have the ability to lead people and the people that you lead more often than not know more about the subject than you do. They are experts in this or experts in the other. So you have to be able to understand what they're saying, not be able to provide the solution. They'll provide it, but you have to learn how to harness it, which is what you're doing all the time. That's something that you have to learn. And how did I learn that? Um, I learned that by realizing that I'd only get on with I'd only get on in life if I could do that, and yeah. so I applied myself and did it. So another one of your many roles was being the British co-chairman yeah, of the Eurotunnel project, uh, which is a big claim, isn't it? I mean, that's a revolutionary <laughs> thing in itself. Well, it's um, it's the greatest engine. It's the greatest. Uh, infrastructure project of the 20th century. Yeah, no, indeed. By a long way. Yeah. Um, so we were curious as to what were your responsibilities in this role? Well, as a board member, um, my responsibilities was a collective responsibility of finding the finance for it, uh, employing the right contractors, um, making it all happen, I suppose. I hesitate to be to claim to have set the whole thing up. The person who did that actually was the man I succeeded, Alistair Morton. By the time I took over, it was very very near a running concern and there were all sorts of responsibilities and I didn't have any specific responsibility no just a collective responsibility <laughs> talk about Brunel and his like, was it Brunel and his legacy we were talking about? Yeah. So the Eurotunnels are pretty good. Oh, uh, it's not bad. Legacy to have. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. If we finish on perhaps the book um 
Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. The first hundred pages get a bit boring, <laughs> but then the rest of the book is very good indeed. But his question really was, why did the West conquer the Americas? I mean, how, how did a handful of Spaniards overcome what was a very thriving civilization? And it was through guns, germs, and seals. They had mm. guns, whereas the other people didn't. They knew how to cope with diseases, and the other people didn't. And they had steel because they had better swords and knives. They had horses, which they didn't, mm. and things like that. Two things I remember which just stuck in my mind. It's very much easier to travel in many countries, but certainly in the Americas, east and west and to the north and south, which is why the Mayans, the Aztecs, and the Incas were three civilizations which were pretty close to each other, but they never mixed. They never mixed because there were the Andes, the mountains in the way. Getting over each of those mountains was quite difficult, and they also failed to integrate these civilizations because these were jungles infested with mm. microbes and diseases. So people tried to travel south or north from north, south to north from the Incas to go up to the Aztecs. They went through malaria, they went particularly malaria, and, it, and in fact it destroyed them. So it interested me in that way. It also interested me very much in how civilizations started in Mesopotamia, which is sort of Iran, Iraq these days, in the fertile, I call the fertile plain, and how they sort of moved north into Europe. There are all sorts of very interesting threads of why people did what they did, mm. which is why Sapiens interested me so yeah. much. Sapiens and uh, Sapiens and that book influenced me more about the creation of the modern mm. world than any other, because it gets down to the fundamentals of why did all these things happen? Yeah. yeah. He argues it's the geographical conditions, like you say, and sometimes it's those conditions which can create global technology gaps and gaps in development. Yes. When you worked for big global corporations like BP, mm. did you yourself experience any moral dilemmas? The biggest moral dilemma of all of them is just still around is corruption. Why are some places so corrupt? And why are some places such that you can only do business if you accede to their ways, if you accede to corruption? And in fact, just three or four months ago, I had a long chat to somebody about all of this. My answer to that was, you'll have corruption so long as you have bad education. Why do you put up with politicians who are corrupt? He said something which uh, which struck me as quite interesting. He said, you'll have corruption as long as the people you govern expect it. Mm-hmm. So if you were a governor of a province in Brazil, for example, you know that the population can be bribed to vote for you, and you bribe them not with money, you bribe them with promises for the future. Right? So you get into power, and you know that when you're in power, they expect you to have your hands in the coffers. So until the public find this so unacceptable that they take action and don't vote for you, you'll have corruption. So I think corruption is by far... It was the biggest answer because even even when I was a director of these companies, any big acquisition or any big uh, concession, like trying to get a big client, we always had to declare and, and prove that in fact no corruption was involved. So we always had to deal with corruption that way. And sometimes we just lost big contracts as a result of our competitors being able to circumvent their system and being able to corrupt people in some way. Usually it was usually through an intermediate who classed himself as the agent. Mm-hmm. You know, the big sums of money going to the agent who would see these the top people in the government. That was the most culturally difficult thing to deal with. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been wonderful to talk to you and listen to all your stories. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're very welcome. It was a great honour. Thank you very much. Thank you. Anything I can do to help make all this happen. Is there a, 
quote or piece of advice you could leave just to wrap us up? Any piece of advice for future NLIGHT students? Well, I think it was the same advice that I gave to Imperial College some time ago. Listen carefully that everything that is said to you, particularly recognising that you're going to hear it from people who actually know more about it than you do, and put it into the context of what they're suggesting. And that is the secret, in my view, of leadership. Put it into the context, even change the concept. If you don't like the concept in which it's stated, do something to change it. Be a first-class project engineer. I said so at the time, 60 years ago. I don't care if you're an engineer, an economist, or a linguist, or whatever the hell it is. Just learn how to do it. It's all over. The world's your oyster. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reading People. We're Enmite Hereford on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. See your contact details in the bio. Till next time. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar the ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14 they placed him in charge of a trading charter and every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across the waves he struggled and kept his guard up inside he was longing for something to be a part of the brother was ready to beg steal borrow or barter then a hurricane came and devastation reigned our man saw his future drip dripping down the drain put a pencil to his temple connected it to his brain and he wrote his first refrain a testament to his pain well the word got around and said this kid is insane man took up a collection just to send him to the mainland get your education don't forget from whence you came and the world's gonna know your name what's your name man alexander hamilton My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done But just you wait, just you wait When he was ten, his father split full of it Debt-ridden two years later See Alex and his mother bedridden, half-dead Sitting in their own sick, the scent thick And Alex got better, but his mother went quick Moved in with a cousin, the cousin committed suicide Left him with nothing but ruined pride Something new inside a voice saying Alex, you gotta fend for yourself He started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf There would've been nothing left to do for someone less astute He would've been dead and destitute without a cent or restitution Started working, working for his late mother's landlord Trading sugar cane and rum and all the things he can't afford Scaring for Get his hands on Planning for the future See him now As he stands on the bow of a ship Heading for a new land In New York You can be a new
with him. Me, I died for him. Me, I trusted him. Me, I loved him. And me, I'm the damn fool that shot him. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you.